What experience would you need in order to become a million-selling crime novelist? Also, what steps should you take in order to forge a career in TV scriptwriting? We shall learn of this and more in today's episode. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. It's Ian Cleverdon here and welcome to the audio podcast series designed to help anyone who wishes to further themselves with their personal hobbies and professional development. The focus in this series being on the creative arts. This week, I am delighted to welcome Simon McCleave to the podcast. Simon's a million-selling crime novelist whose first independently published book, The Snowdonia Killings, was only released in January 2020 and reached number one in the Amazon UK book chart. He has since had over 20 books published, which includes two from his recent Anglesey series published through HarperCollins. He was originally born in South London and after leaving university worked in many roles in TV. He was a script editor at the BBC, a producer at Channel 4 and then stepped into the world of script writing, working on such notable programmes as Silent Witness, The Bill and EastEnders to name but three. You can hear about how he developed this career and took the leap into crime fiction writing in my interview with him. I first came across Simon purely by spotting his books in the Amazon chart back in 2020. I took a chance on trying one out and became hooked into the flawed characters and the fabulous storylines he creates. I went to Bangor University in North Wales many years ago, so was drawn into the locations as well. That gave me a bit of a trip down memory lane. Although thankfully I didn't witness any of the crimes at the time. I was really keen to learn about his career path from TV to novelist and how he manages to create such cliffhangers in his stories. You're in for an absolute treat, whether you're a reader, writer, or just someone who's interested in career progression. So let's get into the interview. Simon McCleave, welcome to Half Hour Mentor. Hi Ian, nice to be here. Let's go back to your teenage years then. What was the first job or career that you felt you wanted to do? From a very early age, I wanted to be Martin Scorsese so and win an Oscar to be a film director. So that was really... Uh, from sort of mid to late teens. I knew I wanted to work in the film business. I wanted to be a film director or a producer or a writer or something like that. And uh, I loved movies and I and I just wanted to kind of be involved in that. So um, that's my, that was my aim from very early on. What was it that drew you to that? I think it's the sort of magical world of going into it, especially in those days, because that was the, the 80s, uh, late 80s. So... There was, it was a kind of magical time where you could sit in a cinema, it goes dark, the screen comes up, and, you know, they talk about the silver screen and uh, and get lost in the world. And you know, just there was a kind of glamour to it, and there was uh, storytelling. Actually, I, loved, I loved the ideas of storytelling, and, uh, yeah, I just found it really exciting, the whole idea of being sort of involved in movies or, or TV, something like that. Totally understandable. So obviously we'll we'll explore your journey with books, but I think there's quite a big journey to explore from that. So what, what educational path did you take? I went uh, to the same school for a long time in South London uh, and did my A-levels. And then I went off to the Exeter University um, to do a degree. So what did you study? Uh, history and English. What drew you towards that? If I'm going to be very honest, it was like I knew I needed to get a degree to go and get a job uh and i was kind of very sort of pragmatic about it i i loved history and english at school i thought they were really interesting but i also kind of knew it was a means to an end um and i didn't want to, and in those days with sort of like late 80s early 90s there weren't a lot of media or film specific 
um, degrees that you could do. So it seemed to me that it was better to get a general degree and then try and work my way into the film or television business. Uh, I mean, these days, you know, my my daughter's doing a media degree at, at Leeds and there's a huge range of much more sort of job specific um, further education you can take. When I was doing it, that was very limited. Yes, I mean, I think a lot of the the practical side, certainly with technologies coming these days, in that that feeds very much into that wider media stuff. But as you say, that you know that almost or certainly pre-internet days didn't exist in terms of higher education. No, not at all. Mm. So I did that. You know, I think it was just the idea was that in and, it, and sort of anecdotally, it was like when I when I did go to people, people just checked I had a degree. But what I did do when I was at university is that I spent almost all my spare time creating a CV and a, a sort of set of skills that I could then get myself my first foot into television and film. So I did, I literally did everything. I did university radio. I put on, directed about three or four plays. I wrote a play, took it to the end of a festival. I did a bit of filmmaking. I wrote articles of film reviews for the magazine, the university magazine. I kind of did everything I could. I was very driven. And I sort of knew that when I left university with a degree that I needed also something else that would set me apart or or a, or a CV that I could say, like, this is what I've done at university on top of my degree that will show you that I'm uh, interested in working in the, the sort of TV and film business. So I was very sort of tunnel visioned with, about that. What was the Edinburgh Fringe experience like? That, that's when you were at university. That was amazing, yeah. Um, yeah, that- I don't know if you know the story of Derek Bentley, but there was a film called Let Him Have It with uh, Christopher Eccleston. But I came across that story and I was really interested. And it's it was very close to where, it happened very close to where I live in South London. And I managed to speak to his sister, who was still alive then, Iris. And I went backwards and forwards and did interviews with her. And I wrote a play about it uh, and took that to the um, Edinburgh Festival. And we, we got... We ended up being on BBC TV. They filmed sections of it for the for the. I mean, Prince Edward came to see it. I don't know. We got the Guardian coming. I mean, it was kind of incredible for a student play, but I think it was very topical. And so, yeah, it went very well. Uh, I was amazed at the response to it. So, yeah, no, it was great. That's pretty good to have you on your CV at that early age as well. It was all right. Yeah, sort of eighteen, nineteen, or whatever it was. Yeah. So tell us about post-university then, because I think you went straight into sort of the media world. How did that work and how did you apply and, you know, sort of put yourself forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I, I think I found it more difficult than I thought I was going to. It was a hard place to get into. So I knocked on lots and lots of doors. I think it for me, it was just about perseverance. It was about a numbers game in that I would send off CVs, not hear back from lots of people, but just kept chipping away. I did some part-time work in an arts documentary place that was a TV documentary place that was okay. But then my first sort of break became when I just got, I didn't even remember how, but some, I persuaded someone to give me some scripts to read. And I did the script reading job for, I mean, I worked for a few companies and I just got the ball rolling. So once I worked for one, and in those days you would, I'd, I'd just go up, get a script, read it, do a kind of analysis and they'd pay me some money to do it. And that was my first proper job in sort of like um, TV and film. How did you find the companies to apply to? I think in those days it was books. I mean, it was a sort of like, there was a kind of uh, a BAFTA book of um, names and addresses. Um, and I would just tailor a letter to each one. 
I think I mean I probably probably sent about two hundred over the first sort of six months, and probably got some in. You know, some people would say, "Let's come in, come in for a coffee." That was always useful, and I liked that. Some people wouldn't bother to get back to you, and you know, some people would just write back and say, "Well, you know, bear you in mind." So, I think I was just very determined, and I, you know, I didn't take no for an answer. So I just kept chipping away, and I knew that if I kept chipping away, then something would give, and it did eventually. And a lot of that is online now. So the research you can do for people oh, who are looking to move into it's a lot easier now. Um, but I think that I think the, the I think the stuff that I did is probably the same in that whatever you do at the university, you know, I did I did work experience as well. So there was a TV production company in South London. So in the summer, I went in there and I just hung out. Uh, for two, three weeks. Again, I knew that I could put that on my CV that I'd done work experience in a television company. Um, so everything I did was geared around that so that what I don't think you can do probably is go and knock on the door of a TV company and say, I've got a degree in media. And they go, well, what else, what else have you done? Well, nothing. I think you have to work in, you know, I would be, if it was me, I would be looking for the student TV company, student TV, student radio, student journalism, try and get a work placement even if it's for a couple of days and even if you are just making cups of coffee and doing a bit of photocopying or whatever they you, you do these days but it's just a demonstration to other people that you've gone beyond and above your degree to kind of get sort of extra skills and extra knowledge yeah you're understanding the culture of the environment then and just yeah. finding out how it works so you then got into writing, I, I believe. So for the likes of Silent Witness, uh, eventually the Bill EastEnders. What was the transition from the script reading to getting to to writing for TV? Well, actually, I did uh, I did quite a long time as a script editor at the BBC Drama Department. So I, that was working with writers. Then I I went to America and worked uh, as a story analyst, which was amazing. So I did that for a little bit. Um, so I basically I worked in development. So I spent a, probably seven or eight years working with writers on TV and film projects, um, either sort of taking them from an idea to script or working on the scripts, doing script notes and just generally making scripts better. Uh, and at the end of that process, I suddenly thought I'm spending a lot of time on stuff that I'm creating. I think I'm going to give this a go. So I then what I so I basically sort of turned sort of poacher turned gamekeeper and, and sort of decided, right, I'll start writing. So, you know, for my first gig was on Doctors, which I think is still going. And then I wrote The Bell and Holby and Midsummer Murders and Silent Witness. And it was interesting. It was really interesting. But it's a sort of, it's quite a brutal world. And the writer's not particularly powerful in TV. Yeah, it's a, it's on those on those big shows, you are part of a factory that produces scripts and then episodes. So, yeah, I enjoyed it for a while, but by the end I'd had enough. So that's when I stopped, um, sort of a little bit burnt out, a little bit kind of disillusioned, I think, in that people would rewrite your scripts and not tell you, and then you'd watch it go out and it would be completely different. Or they'd fire you off a show and then two weeks later ask you if you wanted to write another episode. So it was quite, it was kind of cutthroat. So... I kind of kind of just dusted myself down for a bit and thought, right, I'm going to have a little bit of a, a break from that. And that's when we moved from South London to North Wales and sort of made it sort of a bit of a kind of, we, we'd had a child and we sort of went, right, let's you know, have a little bit of take stock and uh, and do something different for a while. That, that writing on the likes of Doctors and Holby City and so on, is that in a team collaborative sort of, you know, working environment? 
sort of. You you would go in for a meeting, sort of like you know, writers sitting around a table, producers, uh, and then you would get um, right. You're doing episode one five seven, and here's what happens in that episode. Now go and write the script, filling in the blanks, basically, which is all right, but it's not. It's not quite as creative in terms of control as I wanted. You know, I wanted to write my own TV series. I wanted to write my own movies. And I had stuff in development, but nothing ever really got to the point where it was being made. So my living was writing episodes of these series. And creatively, not always. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, some people think I'm, I'm being a bit churlish, but it was interesting. It was in, it was interesting. I learned a lot about writing, which I think has benefited me as a as a novelist. But also, I think it's a tough world, and you need very thick skin. So yeah, but that you know that was part of my journey, I guess. Probably learned a lot about human nature as well, though I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a tricky world. TV it attracts a lot of people with very big egos and and people who have their own agenda, and you have to be kind of wary of that, I suppose. So people act as though it's the most important thing in the world and you'd kind of kind of have a producer throwing a chair, having a tantrum about something in the episode and I'm going, this is just an episode of The Bill. You, know, <laughs> you kind of go, you seem to have lost sight of what actually is is really important in the world and it, it's just a TV show. But um, some people, for, the, for, for, for a lot of people, it was like the most important thing in the world. So uh, that, that, That's interesting to know. So you moved up to North Wales. Where did your career go from that point? I pretty much had enough then. So I just, I, I thought I was going to retrain to be a psychotherapist because I really was interested in psychology and psychotherapy and counseling. And, and I kind of wanted, I think, having done a career where it's very sort of self absorbed and arguably a bit vacuous, I kind of wanted to go and help people and do something completely different. I thought, right, I'm going to do something different. So, and while I did that, I thought, I'll, I'll work as a teacher. So I trained to be an English and media teacher in Liverpool. And I never really got around to doing the training to be a psychotherapist because I got involved as being a teacher. And, and for quite a long time, I loved it. I was teaching in sort of tough schools on the Wirral. I went to a couple of schools in Liverpool uh, and then North Wales. So challenging schools, secondary schools, teenagers, um, and very different to what I'd done before. But there were moments of like, you know, I think you get sometimes with a career like that, you get home and you feel like you've done some good and that you've helped somebody or you've made a difference. And I think that's a very valuable thing to have in a career. Yeah. Uh, interesting. A question I've got for you in a moment is about locations and the research you do for that. I've read all your books. Um, oh. if, and uh, obviously I was thinking, well, you know, what about Liverpool and so on? It's now all becoming very clear to me, yeah. that, you know, having lived in those places, because I know a lot of the settings for um, your Ruth Hunter series uh, it keeps dashing back to Liverpool on yes. occasions. Uh, yeah, by yeah, Cheshire yeah. Oaks and yes. uh, you know, the retail <laughs> park. <laughs> Yeah. But what did the teaching sort of give you in terms of the food, if you like, for uh, writing stories? I suppose even though I was teaching, I was uh, as an English teacher and a media teacher, I was still involved in looking at storytelling. So for me, there was, you know, analysing a book like Of Mice and Men or looking at plays or in media, we spend a lot of time analysing movies, TV shows. We looked at scripts. So I, I sort of was kind of doing stuff that I already knew about, which was storytelling and uh, structure and characters and dialogue. And so I was pretty much teaching what I'd learned within the film and TV business. And I was teaching it to sort of teenagers. And um, and I think, you know, there's obviously there's a little bit of kudos when they knew that I'd written TV scripts and stuff. And it was like sort of uh, 
at least they kind of felt that I knew what I was talking about and I've been there and done it a little bit. And it was good. I mean, you know, I, I think my favourite time is when you've got a class that you get, you have a very good rapport with and you close the door and you're there with them and you're going to do a great lesson and they get loads out of it and it's creative and it's one of the best feelings in the world, one of that sort of that sort of stuff. And I think what I did also learn is that it's probably the adults that are the problem in the schools rather than the, the kids in some ways. Mm. Middle management, senior management, all that stuff, I think, is actually the internal politics of a school are quite tricky. So I kind of was I was kind of happiest <laughs> locked away in a room with with like, you know, with some teenagers trying to make movie trailers and stuff. So well, that, that, I think for what you, you've been teaching there, that's almost you have continued doing what you were doing before, but just really sharing your experience by the sounds yeah. of it, in, in a structured way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I spent most of my time, you know, we were doing movie trailers, we were writing scripts, we were watching films, and so it was like sort of. Uh, I got to, I got to kind of share my passion for film and television with with teenagers, which was great. Let's look at the book writing then, to you know your current role. But what was the first book that you wrote, and how did how did you approach that, and when did you approach it? Probably about sort of six, seven years ago. I I was working as a teacher. And I'd been sort of thinking about writing something, uh, whether it was a script or something. And um, I've been reading a lot of crime novels and watching a lot of crime. So I kind of was, was always interested in that. And I just had an idea. And I thought, well, I'm reading a lot of crime novels. Why don't I try my hand at writing a crime novel? And this was completely like, I thought maybe my mum and dad would buy it. So just, you know, in lunch breaks or, you know, if I was running a det detention, I would sit and start to write the Snowdonia killings. So this was during the time of you teaching? Yeah, and just kind of bits and bobs. And I kind of sort of muddled my way through to a first draft. I showed a few people who said, this doesn't really read any differently to the books that I read. You know, Val McDermott or um, whoever, Peter James or someone which I thought was relatively a kind of good sign that, that they didn't seem to think there was much difference between the book I'd written and other book crime books that were being published. So that was kind of like in the bag. And I just thought, all right, okay, well, how am I going to get this published? And I still had contacts within the literary world in terms of literary agents and stuff. Um, so I approached them and um, people went, yeah, it's okay, but not for us or, but no one, no, no one sort of bit my hand off to have it. And I stumbled across the world of indie publishing and realized that actually if you wanted to you could publish your own novel the more i went into looking at indie publishing self-publishing although i kind of i like to call it indie publishing because i have a sort of team of people now i sort of spent a lot of time listening to podcasts and reading literature and and talking to people and kind of thought right i'm going to do this i'm going to set up my own publishing company publish the, these books the first book and see what happens i suppose the the first book Snowdonia Killings that was self, that was indie published yeah no the whole series the whole Snowdonia series has been done through my publishing company um, but it's my Anglesey series that come uh, is through HarperCollins so mm. I have two I'm a hybrid in the, in that way I think I spent a whole year uh, listening and reading everything I could find on self publishing and on indie publishing and realised that if I was going to do this I needed to know everything about doing your own advertising doing your own covers or finding someone to do your covers, marketing, PR, all that stuff, you know, price points kind of, I mean, it was really interesting because it was a complete different skill set. But I knew that I needed to know as much as I could before I sort of hit the ground running. 
And also I realized that I needed probably three books rather than one book to start it off. So I wrote another book, I grew a mailing list and all that kind of stuff that you do as an indie publisher. And I launched the first book in January 2020. So The Snowdonia Killings came out in January 2020 with a pre-order to the second book. And it just, I, and when you're an indie publisher, you get to see every book that's sold. You could, I mean, it's literally there on a kind of computer screen. You refresh the screen and you can see that you've sold another five books, which is quite exciting because, mm-hmm. and it just sold lots and lots of books. And I was sort of gobsmacked. I kind of went, well, this is, this is crazy. I'm selling hundreds of books and then thousands of books. And then I released the next one and the same thing happened again, but more. So I started scribbling away for the third book, which I released again. And then and I suppose the rest is history. I just carried on uh, through the series. And I haven't looked back, I suppose, because people keep buying them. I'm still amazed that anyone wants to read my books because I sort of, it, it does, it's sort of a slightly surreal, but. Um, I'm not yeah. amazed, quite honestly, because of the, the quality of them. And we'll, I want to talk about that in a sec. Uh, just to pick up on something you said before, though. So when you released the first one, Snowdonia Killings, how many books in the series had you written at that stage? Because I, you know, when I look at it, they, they seem to come very quickly um, from having, because I bought the first one when it came out. I had written Harlock Beach, which was the second one. And I had written half of the third one, the Dee Valley Killings. And as soon as I could see that, the first one was working i quickly finished the third book and then started writing the fourth so i could see it's called rapid release and obviously what happens is it it sort of snowballs so you suddenly get someone reading the first book and they immediately want the second one and if you can release it quickly they then want to read the third one and the fourth and so i think i released the first five within eight months i think and so by then by that point i kind of created a decent body of readers who then wanted the next book so that that's fascinating how do you approach the stories then uh, and the writing so you know do you storyboard out in advance you know perhaps do you know what the scenarios are going to be for future books um do you know what the story is going to be for the the book you're writing currently for example bits and bobs yeah sort of uh no i pretty much know the ending always and i think with a with a crime thriller you always need a, a some kind of twist where you surprise the reader at the end where the reader goes oh right i didn't see that coming and it has to kind of feel organic as well it can't feel like oh it's the postman but we haven't really met the postman so it's sort of quite hard but i then work backwards from that twist because i know that's where we're going and i basically then cover my tracks i sort of i always know the, the beginning bit i always know the twist and and the end bit and then i sort of the middle bit's more of an exploration in terms of joining those two parts together with a sort of police procedural and normally when I'm writing one book, the idea for the next book sort of pops into my head and I start to think about it. It sort of purrs away. So by the time I finish that book, I've already kind of pretty much know what I'm writing next. How do these ideas uh, come about? No idea. <laughs> I think if I'm, I think what it is, is that ever since I was kind of, I was basically, I'm obsessed with murder mysteries and crime and action or whatever it might be so i have spent 50 odd years reading crime books or watching police tv series or crime series or watching crime movies or and i I pretty much think that logged away in my head are a million storylines and characters that all the stuff i've ever read and watched and i think that just pops up and i go oh that's a little bit like the sopranos or that's a little bit like 
that thing that happened in The Godfather, or that's a little bit like uh, that stuff kind of just keeps popping up. I'm going to sit down. I seem to have an idea for another book. One of the things that really stands out in writing, so I know you said that perhaps it's early on that there was no differential to the Val McDermid's, for example, of this world. The one thing that does make you stand out to me as a reader is the characters, um, because the you know the main characters, uh, Ruth Hunter, you know uh, Nick Evans in the in, in the uh, that series, and now the the current one with Laura Hart uh, and with Gareth Williams, they're flawed. And you delve, for me, a, quite a lot more into the personal lives of the main characters um, than perhaps some other authors do. Is that intentional? How do you approach that? I just think that's the most interesting part of a book, really. I think, you know, you've got to have characters. And I'm old enough to realise that most of us have dark, dark secrets and flaws. And that kind of makes us human. And because you want to read about people who are, they may be doing quite well in their professional life, but at home it's chaos or... They they're keeping secrets, or they uh, they're cheating on someone, though, or they or with Nick, you know, Nick's an alcoholic, a recovering alcoholic, and I suppose that's real life. And it seems to me I'm just interested in writing about that, and then attaching a murder mystery to it each time, so that we have these flawed characters bumbling their way through life, making mistakes, and as we all do, and then at the same time solving a murder mystery, which I think sort of satisfies the reader's kind of want for a for a murder mystery as well. I think the two kind of go hand in hand. And I take it you're probably a big music fan as well, because there's always a bit of an interaction between the characters on 80s and 90s music. Yeah, no, I love music, yeah. And I think it's nice. And I think uh, I love the little debates about what they're going to play in the police car. And uh, and Nick's sort of like pompous about what he likes. And uh, yeah, no, it's good. I sort of get to draw on my own musical inspiration for each character. So it's quite nice, yeah. Yeah, that's great. You put a bit of yourself within within them. Yeah. That's great. As things stand at the moment, then, and with uh, you know with publishing, so you've got Harper Collins uh, published the Anglesey series. You have your own company that deals with the Ruth Hunter series. What's the biggest challenge to you in balancing that? The biggest challenge is to keep at the level of that I am at at the moment, because I have no idea for how long people will keep buying my books, and I suppose I just have to kind of hope that the books that I produce are the same quality and that people would just keep reading it and keeping it fresh. So I suppose sort of thinking, do I need to write a new series maybe in 2024? You know, how many books will I write for the Snowdonia series? I'm, I'm writing number 15 at the moment. You know, do I go to 20 and stop or do I just keep going while people kind of still buy them in the same amounts each time? So it's all that kind of stuff. You know, most of the time, I don't really find it a challenge because I get to do something that I like every day and making up stories isn't really hard work. So I am pretty much sit here feeling pretty grateful and uh, and lucky and blessed to sort of be able to sit with a laptop and, and write stories. So I kind of, I'll, I will take all that. And then yeah, there's some TV stuff knocking about, you know, the Snowdonia series has been developed into a series. And we have an actress, we have a writer, we have a pilot being some money and... So that's all kind of burbling along as well. But again, I, I sort of think, well, if that happens, that would be great. If it doesn't happen, then so be it. Uh, and on that, because I was going to ask you about future plans, in terms of TV screenplay, what's your control over that? Is that at your domain or will that be handed over to a screen, you know, a, a screenwriter? They're going to use a screenwriter who's probably more, certainly more experienced than more recently than me. Um, and... But the producers uh, seem very keen to have me involved at every stage. So because of my background as well, because I can read a script and do notes, 
I suppose they kind of want my creative input, which is great. So because part of me, the idea of part of me thinks, do I really want to go back to the Snowdonia killings and start pulling it to pieces and try and create a script? And how much time would that take? And would I actually go, oh, my God, I really don't want to be doing this. So it may be better for me to hand it to someone with fresh eyes who can look at the series from a different perspective while I get sort of some creative control. So I'll be executive producer on it. I'll get to look at the scripts. And I'm happy with that at the moment. You go through the same thing as perhaps myself as a musician, where you look back at an old album and you go, oh, I really wish I'd have done something slightly different on that song. Or, you know, reviewing your old work, marking your old homework is probably, you know, not a, a pleasant experience sometimes. No. And also just, you know, I spent a lot of time with that first book and the first, and I spent a lot of time going backwards and forwards because it's my first, it's like the first album, my first book. I kind of, and so the idea of having to go back to it and spend time with it, I kind of think maybe it, it, it will be better for someone to come to it completely fresh. So, and I've got plenty of stuff to keep me going to say the least. So, you know, you know, I spoke to my agent yesterday and she said, Oh, how's the, how's the year looking? And it was like, well, I've got to write two books for HarperCollins and I've got to write three books for the Snowdonia Killings. That's pretty much 2023 done. So, Great. Uh, got one final question, which my listeners will now know that I ask all of my guests, and that is knowing what you know now with everything that you've been through, what one, one piece of advice would you give to that, perhaps that Exeter University student? Do you know what the advice I would give is? It's, it's uh, to sort of take things a little bit kind of <laughs> easier, be easier on myself, to to be in the present a little bit more i think i spent a lot of time in in my youth living in the future so pretty much projecting where i would want to be and i think possibly a life lesson now i'm in my 50s is to you know that's that's all well and good and i've had a really interesting career and i enjoyed it all but there are moments where you should just sort of stop for a moment and just enjoy it a little bit more rather than kind of focusing on the next thing uh, so that's that would be my advice Simon, thanks very much for joining us in this and for all your advice and your wisdom. Brilliant. I was fascinated to learn about the different twists and turns in Simon's career, including that long stint in teaching. I hadn't realised that. That's three of my guests in this series so far who have spent considerable time in teaching. Having taught within higher education myself, you certainly do learn a lot about character interaction and human nature, ideal material for story or songwriting. It's also interesting to hear about how he approaches his location research, a mixture of personal visits and use of the internet. You can find out even more of Simon's writing technique and some more light-hearted content in a short bonus episode that will be released the day after this one. Make sure you subscribe to the series via your favourite podcast provider to be automatically notified of new episodes. My thanks go to Simon for sharing his journey and taking time out from his hectic writing schedule. You can find a link to his website and his Amazon bookshop in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode and the series so far, please do leave a review where you can and leave feedback through social media by searching for Half Hour Mentor or via the email link in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and until next time, bye for now. 